This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Defending the church is the duty of every Christian. There is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. However, it is divided into three parts. The church triumphant consists of those members who have been received into God's presence in heaven. The church expectant are those who are undergoing purification and purgatory. The last part of the church is us, the believers on earth. The term for the church on earth is strange to modern ears. It is the church militant. As the name implies, our primary task is to fight against Satan and his deceptions. Our holy Catholic Church needs the church militant to defend her. She is being attacked from within and without. The nature of both attacks is the subject of this episode of the Return to Order Moment. We begin with an essay written by the founder of the International TFP Movement, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira. In 1937, when this essay was written, the church was being attacked by communism in Russia, Nazism in Germany, and fascism in Italy. The leaders of that day are gone, but the ideas remain. Professor Plinio appealed to the members of the church militant of the time in his essay, Even if the Holy Church is devastated by the walls of heresy, let us stand with her. This essay has been edited slightly for a modern audience. Let us be with the Holy Church, whether under persecution or during her triumphal Palm Sunday. Even if the Holy Church is devastated by the wolves of heresy, let us stand with her, fighting for her, suffering with her, praying with her. The Holy Father, Leo XIII, says, and subsequent pontiffs have repeated, Communism is an evil of moral origin. Economic and political factors are present, but moral problems produce the communist movement. More than anything else, Communism causes the moral breakdown of today's civilization. This moral crisis has economic, social, and political consequences. Thus, the problems inside finance, politics, and society will only be solved when this moral crisis is resolved. However, only the Church can provide a solution to this moral crisis. Only Catholicism is armed with the supernatural and natural resources to do this. The Church has the marvelous gift of producing in souls the fruits of virtue essential for a Catholic civilization to flourish. These conclusions are taken directly from the papal encyclicals. It suffices to open them up to find what we are saying. If only the Church can remedy contemporary evils, then we must strive to eliminate them within Church ranks. It matters little that others do not do their duty. Let us do ours. Only after having done everything possible, meaning absolutely everything, and not just a little or a lot, can we resign ourselves to the coming avalanche. Even if the whole world should perish and the church be devastated by the wolves of heresy, she is immortal. She will float above the flood's raging waters. After the storm, the men who will found the civilization of tomorrow will come out from within her sacred bosom like Noah from the ark. However, some Catholics do not want to make this great effort. 
Like the Jews, they understand Christ only on a throne of glory. They are faithful to him only on days like Palm Sunday, when the crowd cheers him and covers his path with garments. For them, Christ must be an earthly king. He must continuously dominate the world. They no longer want to hear about him if the wickedness of men temporarily reduces him from king to the crucified one, from sovereign to victim. For these people, Christ did not come to save souls for eternity. He came to establish a corporate regime around the world and fight communism. If communism momentarily wins, it will be a short step for some people to join the communists and wield the whip to scourge the great culprit. However, Christ wanted to go through all embarrassments and humiliations to show that the church would also have to endure calvaries, humiliations, and defeats in her history. Fidelity on Golgotha is much more commendable than on Mount Tabor. Our Lord submitted to all humiliations on Calvary to teach a lesson to these people. However, he also wanted Palm Sunday's glory to teach another lesson to a different group of people capable of understanding its message. Yet another group of people has the detestable mentality that finds it only natural for Christ to suffer and for the church to be harassed, humiliated, and persecuted. They are selfish people, Cuius Deus Venter Est, whose God is their belly. Since the church must imitate Christ, these people think it natural that her enemies overwhelm her and make her suffer. They say this persecution repeats the passion of Christ. However, while his passion is repeated, they lead plush and comfortable lives, indulging in orgies, immorality, indulging all the senses, and practicing all sins. The whip with which the temple vendors were expelled was made for such people. To such catacombalists, we say that we must not cross our arms when the church's enemies attack us. We must not sleep while the passion is renewed. Christ recommended that his apostles pray and watch. We must accept the church's sufferings with resignation as Our Lady accepted her son's passion. However, we must not be unfaithful disciples, facing the Savior's pains with drowsiness, indifference, and cowardice. This would be a reason for our eternal condemnation. Thus, we must always be with the church, because she alone has words of eternal life. Let us fight for her when attacked, but let us fight like martyrs until we shed our blood and use our last ounce of energy and intelligence. If, after all these efforts, the church remains oppressed, then let us suffer with her like St. John the Evangelist at the foot of the cross. We can then be assured that a merciful Jesus will not deny us the splendid prize of contemplating his divine and supreme glory in this world or the next. When Professor Plenio wrote the foregoing essay in 1937, the church was preparing for World War II. When that war ended, a new globalist movement promised to make war obsolete. Key to that movement was the phrase, the Brotherhood of Man. 
The globalists taught that peace would come when we abandoned the ideas that separated us from others and focused on those that bind all people together. A key part of that idea was that the world's religion should abandon doctrines that differ from those of other religions and find common ground. Inconvenient truths should be abandoned. In the modern world, Pope Francis has often given voice to these ideas, as he did in Iraq on March 5, 2021. Mr. Luis Sergio Salomeo discusses the Pope's statements in his essay, Pope Francis's Abrahamic Religions. During his Iraq trip, March 5th through 8th, 2021, Pope Francis said more than once that Abraham is at the root of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. On arriving, he told civil authorities that he was coming to that land, quote, linked through the patriarch Abraham and a number of the prophets to the religious traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, unquote. The Supreme Pontiff repeated the idea the next day in an interfaith meeting at the ruins of Ur, saying that he would return, quote, to the birth of our religions, here where Abraham our father lived, unquote. In the prayer of the children of Abraham with which he closed his speech, he said that, quote, as children of Abraham, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, unquote, he thanked God for having given, quote, Abraham to be our common father in faith, unquote. This conception stems from confusing passages in Vatican II documents Lumen Genitum, number 16, and Nostra Aetate, number 3. They imply that present-day Judaism and Islam originated with the patriarch Abraham. These texts show the influence of French Orientalist Father Louis Massignon, 1883-1962, and his theory on quote-unquote Abrahamic religions, which supposedly include Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. The defenders of the unproven theory that Muslims descend from Abraham claim that this was through Ishmael. This notwithstanding, one must remember that the patriarch's blessing passed on to his descendants through Isaac and Jacob, not through Ishmael, his son with Hagar. Accordingly, even if Muslims descended from Ishmael, Islam could not be called an Abrahamic religion in the spiritual sense. Indeed, the book of Genesis reads, quote, Abraham said to God, May Ishmael live in your presence. That will be enough. But God replied, Yes, your wife Sarah will bear you a son whom you must name Isaac, and I shall maintain my covenant with him, a covenant in perpetuity, to be his God and the God of his descendants after him. For Ishmael too I grant you your request. I hereby bless him, and will make him fruitful and extremely numerous. He will be the father of twelve princes, and I shall make unto him a great nation. But my covenant I shall maintain with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear you at this time next year. Unquote. Genesis chapter 17, verses 18 to 21. Although divine revelation excludes a spiritual bond between Abraham and Muslims, does this preclude biological ones? There is no evidence of such ancestral ties. 
Father René Dagorn made a meticulous study of Arab genealogies before Islam's appearance in 622 AD and found that the names Abraham, or Ibrahim, Ishmael, and Hagar were not used. However, if the Arabs descended from Ishmael, Father Dagorn continues, they would have kept the memory of those names, using them for their children. Islamicist Father Antoine Musali shows further that the biblical and Quranic Abrahams have nothing in common. God's promise to Scripture's Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Quran presents Abraham as the defender of God's oneness. Another Islamicist, Father Francois Jourdan, asks, quote, How can Abraham be the father of different religions? Under what title is Abraham a father in the faith? How is he father in our respective faiths since they are different? Unquote. He explains that Islam is more appropriately termed a quote unquote Adamic religion since it considers Adam to have been the first monotheistic prophet. Abraham was not the founder of a religion. God chose him as the patriarch of what would become the chosen people, from whom the Son of God would be born according to the flesh. God's covenant with Abraham was due to his faith, fidelity, and confidence. After the test of sacrificing his son Isaac, God blessed him, promising him enormous posterity and great power. His descendants would be blessed because of him. See Genesis chapter 18. However, biological heredity alone would not suffice to make quote-unquote children of Abraham. His descendants needed to participate in Abraham's spirit and his fidelity to God's promise. St. John the Baptist rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees, who believed themselves saved because they descended from Abraham, saying, quote, Bring forth, therefore, fruit worthy of penance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Unquote. Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. Jesus himself admonished the Pharisees that it was not enough to be a descendant of Abraham in the flesh. They said, quote, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith to them, If you be the children of Abraham, do the works of Abraham. Unquote. John chapter 8, verse 39. Spiritually, the devil was the Pharisee's father, not Abraham, for the Savior went on to say, quote, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you will do. Unquote. John chapter 8, verse 44. Having abandoned the promised Redeemer, the Jews stopped being children of Abraham in the spiritual sense because they denied the very purpose of the promise given by God to the patriarch, namely, the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Paul teaches that those who believe in Christ are Abraham's true children. He writes to the Galatians, quote, 
that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, to Abraham where the promise is made, and to his seed. He said not, and to his seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ, unquote, Galatians chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. Cornelius Alapide, the great exegete, comments on this passage, quote, The promise of the Spirit to the children of Abraham, i.e. to those who believe in Christ. Abraham's descendant was promised the Holy Spirit to justify and sanctify us. For when God said to Abraham, Thee, it was to his seed, which is Christ, that the blessing was appointed. Unquote. Instead of defending faith's orthodoxy, strengthening Catholics' fidelity, and thus obtaining the conversion of infidels, Pope Francis is concerned only with quote-unquote dialoguing with the latter. The result is that neither infidels convert nor are Catholics confirmed in the faith. Confusion is constantly increasing, and apostasy with it, because of the omissions of the Church's supreme pastor to confirm those baptized into the faith. See Luke chapter 22, verse 32. Like Abraham, we must have absolute trust in God and expect His intervention today, like the angel He sent in the Old Testament to prevent Isaac's immolation. Let us pray to Our Lady of Confidence, Mater Mea, Fiducia Mea, so that she may help us in these terrible times. The current president, Joseph Biden, attacks the beliefs of the Church while claiming to be a devout Catholic. If you Church leaders correctly assert that one cannot be a devout Catholic while attacking those dogmas in which the Church says you must believe— Unfortunately, the majority of bishops are willing to let Mr. Biden continue in his errors. Mr. Salomeo examines this situation in his essay, What Does It Mean to Be Catholic? The President, the Cardinal, and Communion for Pro-Abortion Politicians. In this age of secularism, when political life is separate from religious life, it is commendable that a United States president presents himself as a practicing Catholic and publicly participates in the Church's sacraments. However, President Biden's Catholicism is sui generis. He does not follow Catholic doctrine and morals concerning procured abortion and homosexual sin. Throughout his political career, including the 2020 general election, Mr. Biden has favored the legalization of procured abortion. In more recent years, he embraced same-sex quote-unquote marriage, officiating at one while vice president. Post-inauguration, his administration issued a statement specifying its support for abortion and contraception, not only in America, but around the world. Quote, in the past four years, reproductive health, including the right to choose, has been under relentless and extreme attack. The Biden-Harris administration is committed to codifying Roe v. Wade and appointing judges that respect foundational precedents like Roe. We are also committed to ensuring that we work to eliminate maternal and infant health disparities 
increase access to contraception, and support families economically so that all parents can raise their families with dignity. This commitment extends to our critical work on health outcomes around the world, unquote. Regarding homosexuality and quote-unquote transgenderism, the pro-LGBT sentiment of his cabinet and cabinet-level appointments is well known. Mr. Biden also signed an executive order affirming that his administration's policies is that, quote, children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom, the locker room, or school sports, unquote. Likewise, he reinstated, quote, unquote, transgenderism in the armed forces. And according to Anthony Blinken, his now confirmed secretary of state, quote, he plans swiftly to appoint an LGBTI envoy and allow embassies to fly the pride flag, unquote. Procured abortion, homosexual sin, and, quote, unquote, transgenderism are undoubtedly contrary to Catholic doctrine and morals. Scripture and tradition, as well as the ecclesiastical magisterium, are indisputable in this regard. Now, a Catholic must accept fully and follow both the Church's dogmatic teaching and the moral truths revealed by God. Therefore, whoever rejects even one of these revealed truths, whether of a dogmatic or a moral nature, rejects the entire deposit of the faith and expels himself from the church. Every revealed truth, without exception, must be accepted. That is what Pope Leo XIII teaches in the encyclical Satis Cognitum on the unity of the church, quote, the church has always regarded as rebels and expelled from the ranks of her children all who held beliefs on any point of doctrine different from her own. He who dissents even in one point from divinely revealed truth absolutely rejects all faith, since he thereby refuses to honor God as the supreme truth and the formal motive of faith." Unquote. For his part, in his encyclical On the Mystical Body of Christ, Pope Pius XII stated, quote, Actually, only those are to be included as members of the Church who have been baptized and profess the true faith. And those who have not been so unfortunate as to separate themselves from the unity of the body, or been excluded by legitimate authority for grave faults committed. And therefore... If a man refuse to hear the church, let him be considered, so the Lord commands, as a heathen and a publican. See Matthew chapter 18, verses 17 and 19. It follows that those who are divided in faith or government cannot be living in the unity of such a body, nor can they be living the life of its one divine spirit. For not every sin, however grave it may be, is such as of its own nature to sever a man from the body of the church, as does schism or heresy or apostasy, unquote. Therefore, those who defend procured abortion, homosexual sin, or quote-unquote transgenderism, not just theoretically, but promoting or effecting their legalization, cannot be considered Catholic. 
Dealing with the Holy Eucharist, the Council of Florence, 1438 to 1445, taught that, quote, the effect of this sacrament in which he operates in the soul of him who takes it worthily is the union of man with Christ, unquote. As our Lord said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I live in that person, unquote. Given the sanctity of this sacrament, St. Paul warns of the consequences of receiving it improperly. Quote, Whenever you eat this bread then and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone is to examine himself and then only eat of the bread or drink from the cup because the person who eats and drinks without recognizing the body is eating and drinking his own condemnation, unquote. In an interview with Thomas McKenna, Raymond Cardinal Burke, the former prefect of the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura, warned that Mr. Biden has no conditions to receive communion. Quote, so first of all, I would tell him not to approach Holy Communion out of charity toward him, because that would be a sacrilege and a danger to the salvation of his own soul. But also he should not approach to receive Holy Communion because he gives scandal to everyone. Because if someone says, well, I'm a devout Catholic and is at the same time promoting abortion— it gives the impression to others that it's acceptable for a Catholic to be in favor of abortion. And of course, it's absolutely not acceptable. It never has been, it never will be. Unquote. Most Reverend Charles Chapu, Archbishop Emeritus of Philadelphia, commented in the same line, quote, Public figures who identify as Catholic give scandal to the faithful when receiving communion by creating the impression that the moral laws of the Church are optional. And bishops give similar scandal by not speaking up publicly about the issue and danger of sacrilege. Unquote. However, some prelates, such as Wilton Cardinal Gregory, have spoken out differently. Catholic News Service journalist Cindy Wooden interviewed the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. She writes, quote, While some Catholics believe Biden should not be allowed to receive communion when he goes to Mass, Cardinal-designate Gregory said that for eight years as vice president, Biden went to Mass and received communion. I'm not going to veer from that, he said, unquote. These diverging attitudes in the Catholic hierarchy make one wonder if they both hold the same Catholic faith or if we see a new religion emerging from the shadow of the Catholic Church. Is there one church based on revelation which denies Holy Communion to people who speak out publicly and act against Catholic doctrine and morals, obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin? And then another religion which allows such people to receive Holy Communion without any public display of repentance? Only the first position is legitimate and corresponds to that of the church founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, as we pray in the Nicene Creed. The second is not. The conduct of the country's new president and that of bishops such as the newly appointed Wilton Cardinal Gregory begs the question, what does it mean to be a Catholic? As shown in the above excerpts from Popes Leo XIII and Pius XII, 
this question has long been answered. Many more statements by popes, councils, and from canon law could be added. To summarize them, however, a Catholic is one who has been baptized and believes and professes all the doctrine revealed and proposed by the Church's magisterium in both dogmatic and moral matters. As for anyone who rejects even a single point of Catholic doctrine and morals, Pope Pius XII teaches, quote, Let him be considered, so the Lord commands, as a heathen and a publican, unquote. This concludes, Defending the Church is the Duty of Every Christian. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivation behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in a printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.